following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Every one of us wrestles with the temptation of envy. It's like uh, lying. You don't teach your children to lie, but they do. Nor do you teach them to envy. Envy is something that is within our hearts. It's, uh, it's part of that sin nature that we've inherited from Father Adam. And even in Christ, there remains a remnant of it. You boys and girls experience envy or, or jealousy. Uh, when a brother or a sister gets something and you don't, or when someone in the class is, is praised or are selected for a certain thing, and, and you think it should be you, and you, you maybe don't understand the word, but you know those feelings that you have, don't you? When somebody gets something that you think you deserve better, and you've got that feeling, that funny feeling, that's envy, that's jealousy. And of course, all of us as adults deal with this when someone gets a, a promotion at work that we actually know we're a better employee than he is and, and we really uh, deserve that or someone is singled out uh, later on in the life of this congregation there are going to be some men nominated to be elders and deacons there's going to be other men at that point that have not been nominated and the temptation is going to be envy against those jealousy because you're convinced in your own mind that, well, really, I deserve this more than he does. Envy. But the most difficult part of wrestling with envy is not merely in a context of, of the family or of the church, but it's envy that's expressed by the psalmist in that first half of Psalm 74, 73, where he is envious because the wicked are prospering. And the righteous are limping through life under God's uh, uh, sorrows and afflictions. And we can become envious of the wicked. We can be tempted to join cause with the wicked. And this is the issue that Job is addressing here in our text. Job 21, 1 to 16. Uh, Job now is responding to uh, Zophar's second speech. This is the Last speech now in the second cycle. And Zophar, you remember, as we saw, uh, comes self-righteously. Uh, uh, he considers himself above reproof. And so he rejects the reproof that Job brings to him. But he also perverts the judgment of God because it comes at it through self-righteous glasses, just as we can do that with, say, a city like Rolling Fork or someone who is suffering. And we can... Uh, become gods in that place, going against what we are warned by our Savior, that we make unjust judgments against others. So Job is now responding to, um, and actually this would be Zophar's last speech. And as Job responds to this speech, he, he puts this into a context that even though God afflicts the righteous and allows the wicked to prosper, we may not envy the wicked. Even though God afflicts the righteous and allows the wicked to prosper, we must beware of 
envy. So we'll consider three things here in verses 1 through 6. Um, we're going to actually 1 through 6 and then 7 through uh, 15. Job's going to express two realities. The first reality in 1 through 6 is the righteous suffer God's affliction. The second reality in verses 7 uh, through 15, the wicked enjoy God's blessings. Two realities, but then a consequence. We then must not be envious of the wicked. So 1 through 6, the first reality, uh, the righteous, God allows the righteous to suffer affliction in this life. The discourse is picked up. Job answers and says... And he first rebukes Zophar, and then he, in a sense, reasons with him. The rebuke is verses 2 and 3. Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. Then after I've spoken, you may mock. As I mentioned two weeks ago, it seems that Zophar, in his impatience, interrupts Job. So Job now comes and he says, wait a minute. Would you please allow me to speak? Let me set forth my concerns and my argument. Listen carefully to what I say. Then you can be a comforter. Or then you can bring your false comfort as you've been doing. Because he says, actually, bear with me that I may speak. Then after I've spoken, you may mock. He's already said that their comfort is mockery. They are persecuting him. And he is repeating this accusation. But one of the things that I've noticed in working through Job is once he got his feet on the rock of Christ and the resurrection, you'll notice as you read, and as we work our way through the second part of this chapter, Job becomes more moderate in his language, and he argues even better about the ways of God. So yes, he rebukes this man. He does accuse him and the friends of uh, uh, usurping his words and of mocking him because of what we're calling the system. They're harping on this one chord, right? That uh, uh, you can only be suffering the way you suffer if you're wicked. Now, they're not, have, not, they not overtly accused Job of wicked. They simply laid out the principle. It was quite obvious if you had two eyes. You know, look, uh, here's all the things that happens to the wicked. And, and they mentioned those things. Those things all have happened to Job. Uh, now, it'll be in the next chapter... When so far now will invent sins <laughs> in order to, to bolster their case. Uh, but their assumption is that Job is a wicked man. And Job is saying, if you would just listen to what I'm saying. Because he's reasoned with them from natural revelation. From uh, the tradition of the Father has been faithfully carried on through the church. Um, from his own experience of, of the ways of God. And yet... They're not listening. This is a very important point for us. It's good for us as husbands. Learn to listen to our wives. You know, uh, even when they're venting, this is no insult. I mean, it's, it's what God says. They're weaker vessels. They bear their trials differently than we do. And you come in from a hard day and your wife is venting. Um, you need to listen. Let her get it out of her system. That's the best thing for her at that point. Let her get it out of her system. And then you can uh, uh, pray with her and, and slowly, you know, help her get her feet on the ground. 
It's true when we counsel others. They need to be able to get it out of their system. Even when they overspeak, as we saw Job has many times, and later on, uh, the Spirit of God through Elihu and then God himself will correct him. But uh, listen, let people express their fears and, and their sorrows and their pains, even if they overspeak. Then you'll be in a position to begin to walk them in the way of truth. It's also very important for us in um, arguments, whether political arguments and more importantly theological arguments, that you listen to what your opponent is saying. So often we're in our heads answering them and interrupting them and not, not listening. And uh, we all need to work at learning to listen. And that's, they weren't listening. And because they weren't listening, they, they couldn't grasp the, the reason that Job was giving here. And that is, you know me. You know me. That's what we come to in the second part of this rebuke. The, the reason in verses 4 uh, and, uh, through 6, as for me, so he sets his thesis with a, a question. As for me, is my complaint to man, and why should I not be impatient? He says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not speaking to you guys any longer. You know, my complaint is before God. It's not against or about the Sabians and the Chaldeans. It's not really about the accusations, he says, that you're bringing against him. No, uh, his, uh, his complaint has to do with God. How God is treating him. And it's not primarily in physical affliction, how God is treating him, but in the spiritual darkness that he is suffering. So he argues, why should I not be impatient? And it's literally, why should uh, my spirit not be impatient? He is uh, within, struggling, uh, in great turmoil. And then he gives uh, the reason in verses 5 and 6. Look at me and be astonished. And put your hand over your mouth. He says, you're not looking, you're not listening. He said, just look at me. And it's not just primarily the place he is in suffering, though, because he was in this state of physical suffering, they should have had great patience and gentleness in dealing with him. Look at his case, they say. Look at what I'm suffering and shut up. Nice way of saying it. Put your hand over your mouth. Be humble. Be humble. Because... As he says, even when I remember, I am disturbed, and horror takes hold of my flesh. I am terrified is really the word for I am disturbed, and horror takes hold of my flesh. He says, look at me. He says, I'm astonished myself. Why are you not astonished? Look at me. He's saying, you know what kind of man I am. You know my reputation. I've lived in the midst of you and these people here for decades. You know I'm not a wicked person. Now, he says, I can't buy your answers. I'm, I'm disturbed. I'm horrified. I'm astonished by what's happening. And I don't know. I don't know. But he says, that one thing I do know, your answers are completely corrupt. Look at me. Stop and think. You see, what his reasoning here is that the righteous can suffer grievous affliction at the hand of God. And he is the example of that. They should be astonished. He himself is horrified. Now, he knows, he knows a bit of the answer. You remember uh, what he, he says when the afflictions come upon him. In, in 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He, he can fall back on the sovereignty of God. 
And then things get worse. He still rests in the purposes of God. But as they come at him, he's wrestling with, all right, I'm a righteous man. He himself had bought into this uh, Sadducean system that all blessings of God, all curses of God take place in this life. There is no afterlife. Now, it's not that they really didn't believe in an afterlife, but that's how they're conducting themselves with health, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, And so as they pound on him, well, you see how the temptation's coming from Satan? Well, I'm not wicked. And I can't find the, the respite you offer through repentance, for I cannot repent of things uh, about which I'm not guilty. And, and so he is in this great perplexity himself. But what he knows and what he's saying is what I want you to understand is that uh, God afflicts the righteous in this life not only the wicked. Now, as the book unfolds, uh, as we've already seen, we know much more than Job does. We know what God is doing. He's made Job his champion. And really, when you observe Job himself, as I mentioned, you see him even now on firmer ground. And I hope this is the case in your afflictions. He's growing. His, his, even though he yet has an answer, his faith is growing. So he moves from wanting a mediator to confessing the mediator is going to come in the next section that we'll deal with his, one of his speeches where he actually now acknowledges that there is divine retribution that takes place after this life. And so he's growing in his grasp. But what we can see is how in afflictions God makes us champions. We see in afflictions how God sanctifies us. Now there might be particular things he's rooting out of your life. And you look for those things. But there's also the overall need for Patience and gentleness and godliness and and all the various fruit of the Spirit. And so as you pray in the mornings and as you think about your life and you think about some of the the trials that you're having, um, and to most of us our trials don't seem that significant. I mean, to to some they are much more significant. But but regardless, whether somebody slandered you, well, did God want you to be slandered? Yes. All right. So what do you do with that? I'm being... I'm being afflicted. I'm being slandered. So I'm looking to God to sanctify me through this trial. So this is the first reality. And I I know you know it in your heads. And I'm going to keep trying to drill it into your hearts as the Spirit does to the book of Job. My dear Christian friend and boys and girls, God spares you when you're young. And your trials, for the most part, are very mild. But when we think about this. You think about a dedicated missionary who's killed and leaves five children. Or think about a couple in their 60s and they suddenly become the parents of a granddaughter who uh, was born prematurely. And the rest of their lives are spent in caring for her and helping her to develop. Or think about friends today, boys and girls, children your age whose fathers are either in prison or being put to death because they're Christians. Deal with this reality. Suffering, severe suffering, is part of the life of a righteous person in this age. But that brings us to the second reality, and that is God materially blesses the wicked in this age. And we see this in verses 7 through 15. Now, Job sets his thesis out with a question in verse 7. 
Why do the wicked live, continue on, also become very powerful? Now remember what one of the things that Zophar said, you know, that Job had first shown them that the, the wicked do prosper in this life, and, and they couldn't deny that, really. And, and so Zophar's answer said, well, yes, but before they die, God deals with them in judgment. And so, yes, they, temporarily they'll be blessed, but they're going to suffer uh, the punishment of God in this life. So you see what Job is doing with this question. This is his thesis. This is his response. That's what he's going to prove here. Why do the wicked still live? They haven't died. Uh, they continue and become very powerful. He said, so far, that's what you have failed to deal with. That's what you have failed to answer. And then in 8 through 13, he establishes his thesis. He proves his point now. Um, uh, Zophar has said that, well, the, 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 the wicked children will actually die uh, uh, in, uh, in this life, and, and they'll have no descendants, they'll have no posterity. But, but Job says, their descendants, their seed are established with them in their sight, their offspring before their eyes. He says in verse 11, talking about the family, they send forth little ones like flock, and the children skip about like little calves or, or lambs in the pasture. He says, just look. They have many generations. They're prospering. Their children are happy. They're, they're playing. They're joyful. Zophar argues that their houses and estates will be cut off and they'll have no continuing prosperity in chapter 20. But Job says in verse 9 and 10, Their houses are safe from fear and the rod of God is not on them. His ox mates without fail, his cows calve and do not abort. What planet you live on, Zophar? Look around you. The estates of these people are prospering. Their herds are prospering. Uh, the hand of God is upon them for blessing. Zophar said that the light would be removed from their houses. Um, joy will be taken away. But look what Job says in verse 12. They sing to the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They're having a party. They, their hearts are made glad by good music. Look, listen. Look what's going on. And then uh, the men claim that uh, they would be destroyed and their prosperity would be eaten up and they would have a, a very uh, a violent and grievous death. And Job says, they spend their days in prosperity, verse 13. And suddenly, it simply means they die. They go through no grief, no apparent pangs of conscience. They simply die. That is the experience that we can observe around us. So you see reality too. The second reality is that God blesses the wicked materially in this life throughout the entirety of their life. But he makes it even worse. He now talks about the nature of those whom God is blessing in verses 14 and 15. They say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty? that we should serve him. And what would we gain if we entreat him? Now, it's not that all of them said this, but this is how the unconverted speaks. This is 
practical atheism. This is the nature of a sin-hardened heart. If you're not in Christ this morning, young or old, this describes you in the interior of your being. But Job gives verbalization to it. Uh, Depart from us. You see, they wanted nothing to do with God. They didn't want to know the light of His Word. We don't desire knowledge of your ways. We don't want your Torah. We don't want your instruction. We want to live by our own regulator, by our own light. And then mockingly, who is the Almighty? Who is this all-powerful God that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreated Him? Why, prayer is useless. We get nothing from Him. You can see how the words anticipate Pharaoh when he throws out that mockery to Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? So the reality is not only does God bless the wicked materially, God blesses the gross wicked materially, the hardened wicked materially. God brings his judgment upon them. But we know why. And uh, the psalmist will speak to us of uh, God's uh, purposes in their life. But one particular thing that's what we read in Psalm 92, 7, that when the wicked sprouted up uh, like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only they might be destroyed forevermore. You see, God gives them this stuff now. He gives them these blessings to bring them to repentance, as we read in Acts 14, 17, and 18. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and, and gave you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness that God did not leave himself without witness. That he did good and gave rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He was patient, Paul says. He heaped these blessings upon you that you might turn to him in thankfulness. And if you don't, then the psalm says that all of God's blessings will become fuel for the fires of hell. I want to speak to you young people about this because... You not only have material blessings, but you've got great spiritual blessings being in the covenant of God. He's baptized you, and he's placed his name upon you. And he's wooing you to himself. There's not a sermon here uh, that you're not addressed. And in family worship and in catechids, uh, God continues to woo you. And you understand that is a great privilege to sit under the gospel day after day and week after week. But if you harden your heart, if even now you have these secret inclinations that, uh, well, I don't need to serve God, I'll follow up now because of my parents. But when I'm on my own, I'll do things differently. Do you, you see that you're then heaping up judgment for yourself? It's worse than the material blessings of the world. Now, these covenant blessings will then testify against you before the judgment seat of Christ and will become fuel for the fires of hell. Part of the worm that will gnaw your conscience of all the times that you were lovingly by your parents and by your pastors and elders called to walk with Christ and you've hardened your heart. So I plead with you to... to be alert. Don't harden your heart. Don't apostatize.
from the glorious gospel of our covenant God. So two realities. God afflicts, sorely afflicts, the righteous in this life, and God materially blesses even the gross wicked in this life. So now we come to the great um, tension that's expressed by uh, Asaph in Psalm 73 as he looked on uh, the prosperity of the wicked, he was tempted to envy them and to deny God. Consider his confession. We've sung it. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he kind of repeats Job. There's no, um, there's no pains in their death. Their body's fat. They're not troubled as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Uh, therefore, pride is their necklace. The garments of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness, and the imaginations of their hearts run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, and it sounds like Job again, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So the, the root of this temptation, as Asaph describes it, is not only the prosperity of the wicked, but I, the afflicted righteous one, see them. And God's dealing with me like this, and they're prospering. And the temptation is to become envious. I want you to understand the seriousness of envy. I went back and, and reviewed, you know, Paul puts envy and jealousy in the category of sins if practice say that you're unconverted and will not inherit the kingdom of God. We often think about the uh, overt gross sins of those around us in the culture, but these sins of thought, if you're eaten up with envy and jealousy that marks your interior person, then you are in danger of actually being unconverted. And look how Job deals with it. As he now, in the third place, says that uh, the righteous must not envy. Even facing the true realities, Job says it simply in one verse, in verse 16 of our text. Behold, their prosperity is not in their hands. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Now, what does he mean by the first statement? Their prosperity is not in their hands. A lot of differences of opinion. But I think it's very simple. They didn't make themselves wealthy. They did nothing to procure these blessings. In other words, he once again is looking at the sovereignty of God. God is the one in sovereignty who's brought Job to where he is. And God in his sovereignty has caused these wicked to prosper materially in this life. That is where we must always go when we are tempted with uh, envy. 
we must go to the sovereignty of God. Let me address an envy that's not as much a part of the text directly, but the things with which we will wrestle even more so is when we're envious of brothers and sisters who have received what we thought we ought to have and we're jealous of them. What do you have that you've not received? Are you not called by God to consider others superior to yourself? I wrestle with envy, and I know what the root of it is. The root of it is, I think I am better than that person. So it's not just envy at that point, it's arrogance and pride. I deserve that recognition. My gifts are superior to his gifts. That doesn't matter with God. God distributes according to his good pleasure. God distributes us that which he knows is for our best. If he gave us that which we think we deserve, we would only fall more and more into sin with pride and arrogance. And so you focus when you're tempted to envy another person, another believer. You focus on the sovereignty of God. God has you where he wants you. Don't forget it. It's the only cure. The only antidote to envy. Uh, but in Job's case, of course, it's much more serious. In Asaph's case, more serious. This is to envy the wicked because I'm suffering and they're not. So Job says, I will not envy them. And so this last verse is, the, uh, half of the verse, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. In other words, I'm not going to think like a wicked person. I'm not going to envy them as I look at my own case, uh, one commentator uh, said with respect to uh, uh, Job's remarks here that um, they were, in fact, speaking of the wicked, prospered. But though they were prospered, he, Job, wished to have no part of their plans and counsels. He would prefer a holy life with all the ills that might attend it. That's what he's saying. I'm not going to envy them. I'd rather have a holy life in my afflictions than to join with them in wickedness and all of their prosperity. Now, one of the things he's doing here is once again attesting to his integrity, isn't he? He's actually saying, you know, I see God's given them this, but I want nothing to do with it. Even though I will continue to suffer be accused by my friends of being grossly wicked. I want nothing to do with the plans and counsels of the wicked. That is where we must guard ourselves. In. That is the exhortation from the Lord God that we are not to envy the wicked, even when we suffer in the affliction of God and they prosper. So you keep in mind the two realities. God afflicts the wicked, the righteous often sorely in this life, as some of you well know. And God blesses the wicked materially, even the grossly wicked. As we think about tyrants around the world, even this day, who strut about in all their prosperity and are oppressing the saints grievously, as well as all the wicked in our own land who... Uh, have all of the possessions of the world and power and are using that merely to corrupt and to do damage to others. Uh, we must not envy them. And Asaph tells us the place that we then must go to guard ourselves. He said, if I said I'll speak thus, 
Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You uh, bring them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in a moment. They're, they're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their forms. Or as Solomon says very briefly, Do not let your heart into be sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. Always, surely their future, there's a future, and your hope will not be cut off. There's a future. That's what Asaph is saying. He says, I came into the courts of God. He entered into corporate worship. He's coming to the presence of God with the saints of God and been reminded of the beauty and glory of God and the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God, which we hope every Lord's Day, morning and evening, you're reminded as we gather together here. And suddenly everything is back in perspective. This is why the means of grace are so important, particularly the public means of grace. Because here the Spirit will protect you from this envy and this jealousy and the temptation to join ranks with the wicked. But to know that there's more. There's more than what we see in this life. And that is there is the Lord God and there's going to be the judgment. And it's the resurrection of Christ that will bring us to this hope. As we consider in this season... The resurrection of our Savior. This is uh, the anchor of this hope that there's more. There's more than what meets the eye. You live in another world. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. His resurrection is the guarantee. That's why we read Romans chapter 8. When Paul promises us that uh, all things work together for good, he, he then applies this truth with a series of questions. What shall we say to these things? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised at the right hand of God, interceding for us. You hear that? Because Christ has been raised. You're... you're your salvation is eternally secured. You're delivered from the condemnation of God. And, but you say, well, that's true. But what about all these trials I'm going through now? Well, Paul continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's often the lot of God's people. You see, that's the confession of the psalmist that actually Paul incorporates here in these words of encouragement. Your sheep appointed to be slaughtered. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is our hope. There is your security. There you can say with Job, I will not enter into their counsel. Let us stand for prayer. Oh, wonderful and glorious God, we bless your name and we thank you for uh, the reality you've taught us, reminded us once again, Lord, that the, um, the righteous will suffer and the wicked will prosper in this life. 
But we're not to envy them, Lord, to look to you. And the resurrection of Christ and his session on high is the guarantee to us that all will be made well one day. May your people know great comfort here. May we be kept from the daily envies and jealousies of our lives and, Lord, from these more serious attacks as well. Keep our little ones and our young people. May they guard their hearts, Lord, and protect them uh, from any temptation unto apostasy or envy in their friends in the world who have things and what they think are pleasures they don't have and keep their eyes fastened on Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.